0: Mobile banking requires
1: downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, 30 get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20 bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, so Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jake, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Ari Waldman, professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, about his new book, Industry Unbound, Inside the Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power. Ari. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: So uh, my name is Ari. I am a, been a law professor for about 10 years now. Um, I have a PhD in sociology from Columbia and I graduated from Harvard Law School back in 2005, which seems uh, so long ago now. Um, and my work focuses on technology, law, and society. I'm particularly interested in the relationships between Um, technology and marginalized populations, and uh, governance of the digital economy. Outside of work, um, I am uh, pretty involved in uh, queer civil rights issues, and I have an adorable dog named Peabody who is uh, napping right next to me right now.
1: Could you tell us how you came to write this book?
0: Well, I started my work thinking about, started my work in this research agenda, um, thinking about one particular question. And that is, why is it that we seem to have so many privacy laws and very little privacy? Uh, Every place I would turn, someone is talking about how some country or some jurisdiction passed a really strict privacy law, or there's a new privacy proposal here, there's a new state privacy law here, the European Union has passed the strictest privacy law ever, the Federal Trade Commission is... Uh, fining Facebook $5 billion, Uh, new privacy professionals are being hired by the thousands every year. Why is it that all these changes seem to be happening in privacy law, but we still are faced with products that mine our data in passive and active ways. We still have scandals like Cambridge Analytica. We have data misuse up the wazoo. We have have a, a situation where people can't control or can't manage what's happening with their information. Nothing seems to be changing on the ground, yet people are writing articles and going on the news saying about how strict privacy law really is. So the question about the question is why do we have so much privacy law and very little privacy and I realized that there's one area that no one's been talking about that no one has researched adequately and that is what happens in that space in that liminal space between the laws as they get written and how they reach us on the ground and in the case of the information industry the people that sit in between that is sit in between those two ends the people that sit in that space Those are industry people. Those are compliance professionals. Those are privacy lawyers. Those are privacy professionals and data protection officers and their general counsels and so forth. So um, as a sociologist, this was right up my alley. Um, I have trained in interviewing people and gathering data as a result of um, human interaction and observations. So I did the work and went inside technology companies to figure out what is actually happening between the passage of a law and then the marketing of products that seem to invade our privacy nonstop.
1: Before we get into that, on this specific show, we get a lot of different people with different conceptions of privacy. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what your conception of privacy is. What does privacy mean? What I mean by
0: privacy as power, I mean that privacy empowers. Uh, When you have privacy, you are able to develop your own ideas. You're able to determine for yourself what other people know about you. You're able to manage your image and you manage what Uh, what people think and what people know. You're able to determine what the state and what companies know about you. Um, That empowers you. That both empowers individuals as well as society. Privacy is also about power because some people have it and some people don't, just like in in many other areas. Privacy is a privilege in many ways because those people who have or are adjacent to power are more able to enjoy it. So when I think about privacy, I think about power relations. I also think about trust relations because in my first book, which was really my dissertation, I wrote about how uh, people tend to share information or be more willing to share information in context of trust. Um, just like you're willing to share information with your spouse, your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, etc. But not just in those kind of relationships, but also in relationships defined by a trusting context. So we share very detailed information about ourselves with veritable strangers, like on a dating or a hookup app. And and some of that information we wouldn't share with a partner or a grandparent or so forth. Trust is key in sharing. Trust is what maintains our privacy in lots of contexts and trust and information disclosed in context of trust should be kept private. So this is how I think about privacy, as a combination of power relations and trust relations.
1: Following up on that, what does privacy mean to the participants that you interviewed for this book? Mm,
0: Something very very different. Uh, For them privacy meant things like moving a consent toggle back and forth or the ability to read a privacy policy, not even the ability, the capacity to read a privacy policy and decide if you want to use a website or uh, words that they use like choice and control, that privacy was really about the choice to use uh, a website or not use a website, or the ability to control uh, whether you, whether a website or an app collects information about you. And when privacy is understood in this way, you think about or you have various diff- very different manifestations of privacy law in practice than if you think about privacy in terms of power and trust. Privacy then for these people becomes about, as I said, consent toggles or transparency or individual rights like rights to access or a button that says do not sell my information. If you think about privacy very differently, you might decide, well, I'm just not going to be able to collect certain types of information rather than making information entirely contingent on just a consent
1: toggle. So jumping into the content of the book, you call out two social forces within the information industry that put privacy at risk. Could you tell us about the first one, coercive bureaucracy?
0: So what I found in my research, which took uh, about four years, partly because accessing the technology industry and people inside it is uh, really hard. uh, The things that I found is that even people inside the information industry who may be really well-meaning in that they come into their work really caring about privacy. You know, people who are interested in this stuff are self-selective. They care... Uh, many care about privacy. I don't think a lot of people go into this business thinking, oh, how can I invade my, my customer's privacy today? Some people do that and uh, make it all for show, but not everyone does. But what I found was that even those people who really do care and who have come in to their privacy work trying to do good are coerced by the structures in which they're Uh, In which they're placed. So there are lots of examples of that that I talk about in the book. So I'll just give you a couple. So for example, uh, we have this profession called privacy engineer. And these are, um, these are engineers, these are, these could be coders, programmers, these are um, tech people who um, are specifically trained, unlike almost every other engineer who works at a Facebook or an Instagram or, um, or a Google, and almost like any other engineer, uh, to specifically code for privacy, to do technology work that would enhance privacy. And you know, obviously they care about it. But one of the things that a company does is they may uh, sequester the privacy engineers to one part of the design process or maybe the end of the design process. So it's actually really hard for them to do their work. Instead of having them do uh, think about privacy and code for privacy all along the way from beginning to end, they wait until millions and millions of lines of code have already been written and it's very hard for them to undo anything. Or another example, uh, maybe you have really well-meaning privacy professionals in the privacy department or privacy lawyers in the council, uh, in the council's office. But what a company might do is they may uh, limit the budgets or separate, this was one of the coercive examples that I saw quite a bit, that the privacy budget is separated between general counsel, between compliance, and between IT. So if uh, the chief privacy officer wanted to hire some people to do more privacy work wanted to enhance compliance in some way wanted to have an effect on how products are designed to design they had to go beg for money from the IT from the head of IT who's goal whose mission is not privacy. They may go to the chief compliance officer, again, whose goal, whose mission is not privacy, or general counsel who has other priorities as well. Again, like I said earlier, it's not all malicious, right? It's not like the chief technology officer is sitting there like Montgomery Burns in The Simpsons thinking about how they can harm people. It's just, that's not their world. That's not what they do. They think about other things. So there are lots of different ways that companies can can hire tons of privacy engineers, tons of privacy lawyers, tons of privacy professionals, and do every procedural thing that the FTC or the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe requires them to. But still, because of how they're situated inside the corporate organization, it's almost as if their work doesn't matter and
1: therefore can be channeled toward greater data-extracted ends. Can you tell us about the second social force, namely normalizing anti-privacy practices among privacy professionals?
0: Yeah, so, what ha- so think about it this way. What happens when otherwise well-meaning people are put into these social structures, put into these organizational structures that determine for them what they're gonna be doing? Um, a really good example um, I give to my students and uh, to others when I'm talking about this book is uh, think about, uh, especially legal audiences, is think about what happens to a junior lawyer. A junior lawyer at a big law firm is not doing much on their own they're getting assignments from the assigning partner from the partner that they're working for and their time and their work product is almost entirely determined by people who are above them and they get used to it they get used to the more you do something the more you get used to this is my work right so what happens inside technology companies to privacy professionals is something like this. So maybe you have a privacy lawyer coming into a new privacy department and they're committed to privacy, but the people in charge keep giving them only certain types of privacy assignments. They may come in thinking that privacy is about power, is about anti-discrimination, is about trust, but if your boss only gives you assignments that are about privacy policies and transparency, and notice and giving people choice or something like that, then you become habituated. You become used to thinking, used to uh, behaving as if this is what privacy is. And then all of a sudden those performances, those habits, those things that you're doing become part of your identity as a privacy lawyer or as a privacy professional. This happens to all of us. We all get into routines. And as a result of all of those routines and those performances, we come to think that what we do is normal. What we do is associated with normality or associated with proper behavior. So if someone tells you, without telling you, right? They Instead, someone tells you that privacy is about choice by giving you all of these assignments and all of this work that is almost exclusively about transparency and choice. Over time, you're going to see yourself as doing a lot of privacy work, but it's all about Uh, But it's all about choice and it's all about transparency and it's all about um, privacy policies. As a result, people become habituated into thinking uh, thinking a certain way about privacy that just so happens to be very much in line with what data extractive management wants you to think about privacy.
1: I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned there, which is the idea of notice and choice as the de facto model of privacy. You call it in your book that there are some issues with this model and there are in fact some other alternatives. Would you mind elaborating on both of those things?
0: Notice and choice is the idea that privacy is about us taking in information about what happens with our data, and then making a choice to use a website or not use a website as a result of that information. The manifestation of notice and choice is the famous privacy policy, which many people have seen and very few have read. (laughs) Privacy policies are long, they're legalese, they're written in 7-point font, they're very hard to find, they're always at the bottom of a page that you have to click on, and they're always in the way of you accessing what you really went to the website for so very few people other than students in privacy classes read privacy policies so not only is the problem there are many problems with notice and choice not only is the problem that people don't take in the information because they're not reading privacy policies, but the other, pro- other part of the problem is even if we all read privacy policies, even if we took all of that time, it's very difficult for humans to take in that information and then translate that, assuming they could take in the information, and then translate that into a rational choice that directly reflects your preferences from taking in that information. There are lots of reasons why. One reason is because we tend to make decisions based on heuristics as opposed to um, information or informed. Uh, informed consent. Uh, Informed consent works really, really well in a one-off. Think about when you go to the doctor, right? A physician may give you a list of side effects of a procedure or a list of side effects of a medicine, and you're able to talk with the physician about whether you should take this medicine or have this procedure. You have it back and forth. You can learn about it, and you're only making one decision. But in the information economy, you're making that decision a bazillion times. (laughs) You're making it on every website, on every app, every time you uh, open your computer, you have to make that decision. So not only do people not read them, and not only is it hard for us to translate information that we take in to make a rational choice that reflects our preferences, but the third problem is that we have to do it all the time. And we get tired of that, and we get so tired of it that we give up. We become nihilists about it. And this was—I was recently part of a joint paper with Joe Toro at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, showing that people give up because of this problem all the time. And there are many other problems with notice and choice. And despite that, notice and choice is the primary form of privacy regulation, or has been the form of privacy, uh, primary form of privacy regulation for decades. I've written an article that argued that, that was notice and choice was essentially the first wave of privacy law in the United States and in Europe and around the world, and that that was entirely self-regulated, entirely about put the onus of privacy protection on us and is entirely a form of self-regulation on the parts of the company. Things are changing now, but notice and choice is still a key part of regulation,
1: even today. What organizational strategies do companies use to ensure that privacy laws interpreted and implemented in ways that do not interfere with data extraction?
0: Wow, there are lots of things that companies do to make sure that even the most strict sounding laws uh, are not going to interfere with their business model. So first and foremost, the, the approach that privacy or data protection law has taken, despite the, uh, despite the vigorous lobbying efforts, um, supposedly against these laws, is, is almost exclusively procedural. And... Companies have become really, really good at channeling or orienting procedures toward legitimizing or or framing the behaviors that they do already, rather than restricting their data-based or data-driven business model. And what I mean by that is, well, think about procedure. The procedures that are required by the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, which is Europe's comprehensive privacy law. These procedures are things like an impact assessment, where you're supposed to assess whether or determine how uh, how a new product affects consumer privacy. Um, There are record keeping requirements. You have to hire data protection officers. You hire um, privacy offices. These are similar requirements in the Federal Trade Commission's uh, requirements for comprehensive privacy program. These are procedural requirements. They're uh, they're not limiting what the company does as a matter of substance. They are procedural things that are meant to at least at their best uh, keep privacy front of mind as people are going about their daily lives. But what companies do is even though an impact assessment, again it's a procedural requirement about uh, what, you're, what a company is doing, even though um, companies have to conduct an impact assessment. They reduce it to a checkbox, right? So, my, in, my re- in my research, I literally found a chart, a checkbox chart that reduced an impact assessment requirement. Uh, does the item do this? Does it use gender? Does it use sensitive data? Does it do X? And all you, ha- all the people working on it, had to do was check yes or no, X or X or check, uh, or Y or N. And that, and maybe there were four or five questions and that was it. And uh, even in one place that I was researching, uh, there was even a note on top of the form that said, uh, unless there's any doubt, just check no, (laughs) right? So there, what companies do is they turn these procedural requirements and they become symbolic, uh, merely symbolic of what they're supposed to do. And symbolic compliance is not new. The late Lauren Edelman, who was, uh, who was a professor of sociology and law at UC Berkeley, who recently passed away way too soon, she wrote this fantastic book called Working Law, which was about how merely symbolic structures of compliance have taken the place of real substantive compliance with Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, which is about gender equality in the workplace. So instead of, similarly, her question was, why have we had this law for so long, but you know we haven't had any real big improvement in gender equality at the high levels of companies? And it's because the companies have taken this requirement and turn, turned it into managerialized or symbolic compliance. So instead of hiring more women, all they have a policy. Instead of ensuring retention, they have an appeal, a claims process. Um, instead of actually working toward equality, they use the evidence of having a claims process or a form to fill out uh, against claimants, or they use it as evidence that they're in compliance. Here, In the privacy space, these kind of procedural requirements have elevated up to the level of law such now the GDPR is like, well, privacy is having an impact assessment. Privacy is having an officer. It doesn't matter if that officer has no power. It doesn't matter if that chief privacy officer has no budget. It doesn't matter if the chief privacy officer is always overruled. It doesn't matter if the impact assessment is just no, no, no. It doesn't matter if the audit is just... um, Uh, The audit of privacy programs involve questions like, are you in compliance with section 3.2 of the FTC consent decree? And the answer is just a letter from the executive of the company saying, yes, we are in compliance with section 3.2. It doesn't matter as long as you go through the motions. What I found during my research is that even though I'm sure out there, there are companies that are trying to do their best Uh, when it comes to privacy, the procedural requirements of the second wave of privacy laws like the GDPR are very often reduced to these symbolic forms of compliance that are for marketing purposes and therefore just in name only.
1: How do design processes bake in an anti-privacy bias in these companies? These processes
0: also become habituated to the point where privacy professionals believe that this is what privacy is. When you talk to when you talk to people in compliance departments or privacy compliance departments and you ask them to think about, so you ask them, you know, what do you do on a regular basis? What is your job? And they will show me stacks and stacks of paper of work products, policies, booklets, training, impact assessments that they spent the last several months on. And that's a lot of work. There's no doubt that that is a lot of work. Um, But then when you try to figure out, well, have you had any impact on what products look like in the end? Have uh, products become more privacy protective? Are there different defaults on these products? Uh, Are you collecting less information? Are there data minimization requirements inside? Like All these other questions that would have more of a substantive effect on, on data privacy protections on the ground, and then you realize that there is almost there's very little connection between uh, having a merely having a policy and having a or having a claims process or you having having hired a privacy engineer or having a privacy lawyer, between that and privacy, uh, better privacy engagements or built-in privacy protections on the ground in products. So what companies do is, since this is what the job is, you hire people who may be really interested in privacy and you hire them into compliance departments and their jobs become impact assessments, policies, uh Um, working with outside counsel, transparency reports, then people become, they realize, they think, they become, uh, let me start that again. Then people come to think that, well, I'm protecting privacy. This is what we do. You can't imagine how many times I heard people say, well, this is what privacy law is. This is what we do. There are no alternatives. Um, There is... No alternative to the point of saying, well, why don't we just stop collecting this type of information that may be harmful to marginalized population, but that's not what privacy is. We don't do that here. What we do is impact assessments. And in the impact assessment, we're supposed to see that information. What we do is keep our records. What we do is... Um, make sure that the privacy engineer has an opportunity to go over the code or uh, be engaged in the design process. But what companies do is they uh, make sure that people's jobs, even if they have a very lofty sounding or privacy-protective job description, that people's jobs on a day-to-day basis
1: does not interfere with the underlying business model. People say privacy is hard. How is this framing advantageous to technology companies?
0: Well, when privacy is hard, then it's very easy to excuse, quote unquote, mistakes. So it's very easy for a company to say, just like Facebook, or now Meta, has said many, many times over the years, during its repeated and repeated privacy scandals, they say, privacy is hard. We're working on it. Trust us. Give us some time, and we'll get it. We'll get it better. We'll get it right. But over the years, have they gotten better? Have they gotten it right? And of course not. Right. These things keep happening. The fact that something is hard is an excuse for them to for is an excuse for them to shove aside or to explain away their inadequate um, compliance or their inadequate behavior. And yeah, no one is doubting that privacy is um, more than just turning on and off a light switch. No one is saying that. But the idea that a company can say, this is really hard, so let us get away with it for decades and decades of not really doing what the law is meant for us to do is just bananas. I mean, we don't let, I don't let my students, when we have a paper due, and someone come to me and saying, well, writing this research paper is really hard, can I never turn it in as a result of it being hard? or can you excuse all of the mistakes that I've made? Uh, That's not how it works, and that's not how it should work when it comes to compliance with privacy law.
1: What do you see as some of the potential solutions to these privacy problems?
0: Mm. So this is this is the rub, right? This is where we need to go. The what we've seen so far, we can't solve the problem without fully understanding where we have been. And what we've seen so far is that we've gone through and are going through different waves of privacy law. The first wave of privacy law has was notice and choice, and it was very hands off, almost uh, laissez faire in terms of the law's approach. The second wave, which we're in the middle right now, is heavily managerial. And what I mean by managerial, it includes or in, interge- it injects into privacy governance principles of pu- of um, efficient management. So that's a lot of the compliance and the neoliberal idea of empowering companies to govern themselves or public-private partnerships that inject public governance with private monitoring and control. And that's what we're seeing with the GDPR and lots of I, lots of proposals for privacy law here in the United States. And we've talked all about the problems with that form of governance. So if those are the problems, if that's where we are, then we need something entirely different. We need to reclaim older forms of of governance and regulation that simply get used to stopping companies from doing certain things. Right? We need to, if a company gathered data in imp- improperly and used it to build an incredibly profitable algorithm, not only should they not be able to use the algorithm, but they also have to get rid of the data And they, in addition to being fined. We need new systems and new institutions to engage our privacy professionals. So if we're going to have people inside companies focused on privacy, which I think we should, they can't be captured by the company, nor can they be in a position where they are constrained or limited by the company. So the way we've done that in the past is we've done that through uh, organization. We've done that through unions uh, that empowers workers and and gives them employment protections even when they do something that may challenge the company's uh, information-driven or data-extractive bottom line. So several years ago, you may remember all those stories about Google and Meta firing their uh, research teams as soon as they, like Tim Gebru and others, fired their research teams as soon as they started working on research that challenged the company's profit models. And unfortunately, companies are the ones that control all that data. So what we need inside the company are protections for these workers to make sure that if companies are going to hire that you know companies that hire people tech workers to do privacy that they have employment protection such that they can't be fired when they actually do good work on privacy but even more importantly companies cannot be the ones that control the data that um, that on which the economy is based that's why that's the only reason why we have internal research arms is because companies refuse to provide any data um, to researchers or very limited data to researchers or they're very used to cutting off researchers when they try to get access to data so we need public control over the over data that drives the information economy you know no one is saying that we need to shut down the internet or go back to a different type of um, a different type of economy that's not based on information. But the types of rules that we need are far should be far more focused on constraining excessive corporate behavior, constraining data extraction by simply limiting what companies can do, preventing the use of certain types of data, providing more public control over the information used in the economy, giving workers the kinds of protection that they need in order to enhance privacy protections on the inside, and essentially turn us to a different wave, a new wave, a new substantive, more progressive approach to what the law should be doing. We should no longer rely on companies to monitor themselves. We no longer should rely on internal assessments that are governed by the company themselves that are easily pro forma. Uh, Yes, I'm in compliance with this rule. We need greater public governance Uh, not just in this area, but in environmental regulation and so many other areas where we have our regulators doing the work for us rather than companies monitoring themselves.
1: Well, Ari, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's about all the time we have for today. If people want to find out more about you and your book, where can they go?
0: Well, they can go to my UCI webpage, just search Ari Waldman, University of California at Irvine, or they can go to my website at Ari E. Waldman, that's dot com, and they can send me an email and introduce themselves, and I'd be happy to talk more about this work. Great. Thanks again for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to talk with you.